Radio. Let's call the whole thing off. A talk by Philippa Mater at the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium. Thank you very much. I'm sorry, the microphone has to be right down here because I'm a bit on the small side. Can you all hear me? Even if you can't see me, that's absolutely fine. Um, Oh, shivers. There we go. Okay. In this presentation, I want to cover some material and some thoughts which I have never exposed in public before. So uh, please be patient with me because some of my thinking might be a little bit ragged on, on some of the issues I'm going to cover. That's why there's a question mark at the end of my title. Let's call the whole thing off question mark because I'm not quite sure if I do want to call the whole thing off just yet. We'll wait and see. John Izzard, who writes sometimes for Quadrant, wrote a a really scathing article about people like us in 2014, and and I took it very personally because I was actually in this this article of his. It was an article that appeared in Quadrant Online in 2014, and it was entitled Western Civilization's Weekend Warriors. And that would be us. It was about the IPA symposium that was held that year in Melbourne. Kevin, you were there. I remember you speaking. Uh, we had a great time. It was really fun. Professor Sir Roger Scruton was the keynote speaker. And it was, it was an absolutely fascinating time. I really enjoyed it. Um, and John was there too, and I met John. But John came away with a rather more jaundiced view of these get-togethers than, than perhaps I had. And what he identified in his article was that when we all get together like this, what's missing is a practical call to arms. So what we tend to do instead is get together and we describe the problem over and over again. And he says that what we should be doing is coming up with some actual solutions to some of these problems. And I agree with him. But when I start to think about how we might address the problems in front of us, I very quickly become overwhelmed because the problems in our education system, notably the three big wrongs that David's identified that we can talk about, they're in the the colloquium program at the front there. When I look at them, they seem to be entangled and enmeshed with each other to such a suffocating degree that I really do want to call the whole thing off. So in order for what I'm going to say today to make any sense to you at all, I need to start with three observations. And unfortunately, they're all about me. But if, if I go through these, these three observations, hopefully what I then go on to say will make a little bit more sense to you. The first observation is that I'm a practicing Catholic and I have no problem making that public. It does influence everything I think about liberal education. It, in, it influences my thinking about the purpose of liberal education and where it should be going. The older I get, the harder it is for me to argue away from this perspective. I find that if anything, uh, I'm becoming more entrenched in my Catholic way of thinking and I'm finding it harder to argue about liberal ideas from a non-Catholic perspective. I am amazed at people who can argue in defence of the liberal arts from a non-Christian perspective. I am in awe of these people because I can't do it. As far as I'm concerned, those arguments fall over at the first blast of moral relativity. But people do it and, and I take my hat off to them. I do believe in moral absolutes and they shape my approach to liberal ideas and if that's a contradiction in terms, I'm totally fine with that. I can live with it. The second observation I have to make is that I stand here as part of the problem. 
I put my hand up as that I have lived very happily off the public purse for a number of years. I was a university lecturer in a university for six years full time, um, admitting people who could barely read or write to the courses I was teaching. Um, I have recently finished nine years as a state public servant in Western Australia. I still do university lecturing in a broadening unit in a university, a broadening unit which is designed to make money for my university and not to make the world a better place. I can offer no defence of my conduct except that <laughs> I needed the money. <laughs> I have to live. I have to live somehow. Um, but I'm very aware that I could be accused of biting the hand that has fed me very successfully for a number of years now. And the third observation, and this is the longest one, and this is where I really crave your patience because it's going to take me a while. The third observation is that I recently discovered that I have been evolving into something called a Catholic Libertarian. What on earth is a Catholic Libertarian? Contradiction. <laughs> you are so wrong. <laughs> you are so wrong. It is not a contradiction in terms. And that's what I'm going to explain to you. Libertarianism as a political philosophy, for those of you who are instantly thinking of free love and drugs and things like that, in a nutshell, libertarianism seeks to limit the role of the state and to maximise personal autonomy. That's the basic core thing about libertarianism. But in practice, of course, libertarians are usually confused with libertines. And there's a very good reason for that, because libertarians usually focus on deregulating the more obvious kinds of mortal sin. Um, and also because leftist, leftist libertarians particularly are great exponents of free love and unfettered sexual expression. If you want to see what libertarianism can look like when it's a little bit more organised and a bit less chaotic, go and visit the Liberal Democratic Party's website. Here in Australia, we have a libertarian party. Their platform involves deregulating the use of tobacco, gun ownership, bike helmets and illegal drugs. They are pro-assisted suicide because they see this as a victimless crime. And they are pro-gay marriage to the extent that they don't believe the state has any role in determining who gets married and who doesn't. They believe in the repeal of the Marriage Act and that people should be free to contract whatever kind of domestic partnerships they want to in any way they wish. And yet... If you go and look at their other policies, there is a surprising amount that a practicing Catholic can actually agree with, not disagree with. Balanced budgets. Who thinks that's a bad idea? I don't. I think that's a great idea. Greatly reducing the amount of welfare spending we're engaging in based on the argument that much of our welfare spending is perpetuating poverty. It's not actually alleviating it. Lower taxes. Who doesn't think that's a good idea? I definitely do. Far greater localisation of government. And if you read the LDP's policy on this, it's entirely consistent with subsidiarity. So, you know, you're reading all of this and it's very interesting. They also believe in scrapping SVS and the ABC and the Human Rights Commission, none of which are friends to the Catholic Church. Okay. So why might there be a problem with being a Catholic libertarian? Well, it's partly to do with how um, our beloved church has dialogued with the political world for most of the 20th century. For decades, it, the loudest voices have been those propagating a socialist and centralist economic line. Um, shameless promotion of the ALP in Australia by some quarters. As Catholics, we want issues of social justice addressed. We know that. We have a social conscience, or we should do. But the louder voices in our church seem to keep proposing more welfare payments, more income redistribution and more government intervention. This seems to be the only solution they can ever come up with. 
But there's plenty in the church's history and in its teaching that supports ideas like limited government, free enterprise, legitimate profit that doesn't suck the blood out of the workers, voluntarism, huge emphasis on voluntarism. And all of these are completely consistent with economic libertarian thinking. And thank goodness there are now people with slightly louder voices within the Catholic Church who are trying to stimulate this discussion more. And the most obvious example I can think of is George Weigel who's not just a biographer of Pope John Paul II, he's actually um, a free market Catholic, and he's, he's really trying to churn up discussion about this. I have an extensive reading list as well, if anyone's interested, which you're probably not, but anyway. Catholic libertarianism as a movement, and it's a genuine thing, has been evolving very much since the Reagan era, since the neoconservative revolution of the 80s, and now in the United States that they're in that sort of post-Tea Party and Trump era, more and more Catholic libertarians are coming out of the closet. And it's very exciting because that whole movement's still trying to hammer out what is a Catholic libertarian. In terms of an Apostles' Creed, if you just want like a, a sort of basic statement of belief, I'd say all of us, and I include myself, believe in smaller government, lower taxes, <coughs> voluntary charity, and a social framework based on the Ten Commandments. And that is, of course, what sets us apart from all the other libertarians. It gets very interesting. That's the basic statement of belief. Outside of that, all bets are off. We've got distributists arguing with free market capitalists. We've got quasi-mystical eco-anarchists like Michael Martin arguing with classical liberal economists. And we've got that group that I tend to call the optionistas, who is a sort of, it's an expanding group. We've got these people proposing the Benedict option, the Sophia option, the, the Patrick, Dominic, Ignatius and Marian options. They're all out there. They're all interesting. And, and all of this discussion is taking place within the Catholic libertarian movement. And it's fascinating. So the reason I'm giving you this big long preamble is that when I looked at the colloquium, three big wrongs that were identified, these big wrongs in, in education in Australia at the moment, to me they all seem to be caused by the same thing, which is the heavy hand of the state. That's the, that's the one thing holding them all together. They are all the direct result of state funding and the almost complete control that the state has of the provision of education in Australia. He who pays the piper calls the tune. If the state wants 600 head of engineers this year, then the state has to be given that. It doesn't matter about premature specialisation and narrowness of vision. If the state doesn't think traditional humanistic studies have any value, then the state will not care less if they are hijacked by postmodernists, as long as those enrolments just keep going up. And if the state chooses to disregard religion and think that it's got nothing to offer us, then the state will aid and abet that process and it will use everything in its power, including the education system, to do that. Back in the day when I was working in the universities in the 1990s, people used to tell me with a very serious face that the enemy of the humanities was economic rationalism. This, and, and nobody could tell me quite what economic rationalism was because it didn't seem to be economic or rational. But, but anyway, you can call it utilitarianism. I, I don't care. I think once you peel off the labels, what you're left with looking at is an old-fashioned, unreconstructed, state-run monopoly on the provision of education in Australia. And the state is also serving now a very homogenised buffet um, of educational choices across the country. And I'm hoping Gary Johns is, is going to tell us later today that that buffet is largely junk food. It's very similar. I'm not an anarchist. I do believe that a limited, well-controlled, democratic, secular state is not a bad thing. 
in itself. But we don't have that kind of secular state in Australia. I don't know if we ever did. We have a state which is becoming overtly and increasingly hostile to the Judeo-Christian tradition and our truths. I've got the word values in here and I've scribbled it out. <laughs> never, going to, never again. I will never say values again. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Ian Benson. You changed my life. <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing because I'm about to say something really mean. But anyway, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. I think our state has moved from being the custodian of traditional Judeo-Christian values like marriage. Gay marriage, classic example of this process. The state used to be the custodian of marriage because it recognised that marriage predated the state and it's something worth preserving and hanging on to for the sake of a good society. The state has now moved to the, being the arbiter of marriage. It now thinks it can decide what marriage is and what it isn't. That's what the state does when you give it its head. It will go in that direction. This should prompt all of us to a very serious examination of conscience because back in the day when the state supported our values, we were all quite happy with the state being involved in education. When the state was benevolent towards traditional families, when it supported the basic Judeo-Christian ethos, um, when there was a merit-based education system, we had no problem with the state pouring money into education. We went to them and begged for it. We begged for state funding for our independent Catholic system and we saw the obtaining of this as a major victory. But the state we are now married to is a very different one from the days of our courtship and honeymoon because we're now trapped in this sort of Faustian bargain. We've got this nasty, vicious cycle going on where increasing failure in education is being rewarded with increased funding. There's just more money going in and it's going round and round. And just as a sideline in this light, I think Gonski 2.0 could be the greatest thing for the Catholic education system I've ever seen. They should run. They should not take that money and they should run because that money has so many strings attached. This is a very bad time to be taking even more money from this particular state, the trajectory that we're going down. So when I go through that examination of conscience and I think about all of these issues, this is when I start to wonder whether we can actually salvage anything from the whole mess of education provision in Australia. And this is where calling the whole thing off and also Buckminster Fuller um, come into it. For those of you who are hoping I was going to talk about Buckminster Fuller, here it comes. It's this one little bit. Um, very interesting man, Buckminster Fuller. Um, independent scholar, Carl. Yeah, crank. <laughs> I'm not allowed to say that. That's why I said it. Um, he was a futurist and a systems analyst and, and um, an inventor and an interesting person, very interesting person. But he is alleged, well, he did actually say something which I think is very wise and which I think it's also very pertinent to what we're facing today. The quote has several different versions because he said it a number of times, but I'll give you the easy version. This is what he said. In order to change an existing paradigm... You do not struggle to try and change the problematic model. You create a new model and make the old one obsolete. So in order to change an existing paradigm, you do not struggle to try and change the problematic model. You create a new model and render the old one obsolete. And I think that might be where we are at the moment. Alistair McIntyre in After Virtue warns us against the dangers of trying to shore up the Roman Imperium. He says, don't do it. Don't try and undertake a reverse march through the institutions and, and orient them back to our values. Don't do that. Um, and, and I think McIntyre might be correct. 
Who here has read the Benedict Option? What? It's the book of the. Thank you. It's the. It's it's the. It's the must-read book of this year. You must read it. But unfortunately, it's not available on Kindle yet in Australia. That's probably why none of you have read it because it'll be a lot cheaper that way. The Benedict Option is all about creating alternative structures, partly to save what we believe, but also partly in the hope that it might one day render the existing structures obsolete. Rod Dreher, who wrote the Benedict Option, said that he left something very important out of his book, which was a discussion of the political economy. He didn't bother talking about that. He came up with every other kind of solution, but he didn't talk about politics and the economy. Um, and he realised that afterwards. So that's what I'm going to do with our three big wrongs. I'm going to look at them from the perspective of the political economy and see if we can find some solutions to these problems out of our political economy from a Catholic libertarian perspective, because that's my favourite perspective at the moment. So the first one, vocational training over, like this overemphasis on vocational training and over-specialisation. I'm actually not sure this is a big wrong because I actually believe in vocational training and I'm not that concerned about the dangers of over-specialisation. What I am concerned about are the remedies proposed for this at the moment by the university system, which is broadening units, which I teach in, um, but also demanding that students undertake a basic degree before they then do a vocational specialisation. This is not a solution. This is a university solution, um, which churns up a lot of income, but it also means that young people, when they do eventually enter the workforce at the age of 40, they're <laughs> burdened with this most colossal debt. Australia is carrying a huge amount of higher education debt, a good chunk of which, up to 25% in some estimates, will never be repaid. That's not good for our economy. I don't think there's anything wrong with the idea of broadening units. I love them. They're such fun, but they need to be delivered at high school. They should not be delivered at a university. Anyone who finishes school at 17 should probably be broadened enough to start undertaking vocational training. Why isn't this happening in our schools? Well, if you were here yesterday and you heard Kevin, you'll know exactly why none of this is happening in our high schools. And it's very unlikely that any state government is going to bite the bullet and, and purge its education system and reform it. I see two ways forward with this. We can work towards increasing the amount of education we deliver privately. That's solution number one. Solution number two is that we work at the same time towards engaging in a debate about deregulating the delivery of education in Australia, the way it's been done in the UK, possibly more so. I am not seeking the survival of the Catholic education system as part of this process. That would not be a priority for me, I'm afraid, as someone who went through 12 years of it um, and someone who saw a lot of other people go through 12 years of it, and it's been 30 years since I left school, and I haven't seen anything that's really set me on fire coming out of the Catholic education system. I have seen good bishops try very hard to reform their CEOs across Australia in different dioceses. They have been met with resistance, I think, at practically every level, and the outcomes for change, they're very hard to measure put it that way. The Catholic education system is no longer doing what it was set up to do. It is a cheap private schooling option and that's lovely for aspirational people, um, but that is not what it was set up to do. I actually think we should sell it off. 
There you go, I've said it. I don't care. Just going to say it. Sell it. Sell it. Turn it into an independent, privately funded school system. Let people buy it. Let people, individuals, collectives, whoever's got money can buy it. Other schools could buy it. And um, that way they would have no official or financial. Are you writing this down, Archbishop? Um, I don't think we can save the system we already have. I know that seems drastic, but with the money that you raised from that sale, you could create an alternative. Catholic, very small, Catholic <laughs> education system, authentically Catholic, operated under, under the direct authority of the local bishop with authentic Catholic principles. It would need to be very small because I don't know how much demand there is for authentic Catholic education as well, but that's okay because you'd have just enough money probably to do that. That's what I suggest. How else can we deliver education privately? We all know about homeschooling, of course. We know you can actually start your own school as well, but the trouble with both of these options is that they are both controlled by the state because the state regulates homeschooling and the state regulates the setting up of private schools. The state also controls access to the university sector because there's very few private universities in Australia, as we know. Of course, Campion College is the standout example, but David can tell you and Paul can tell you, it's a struggle to break even. We just don't have the critical mass of people here. There's a common theme emerging there, obviously, that it's very hard to create alternatives when the state is so involved in everything to do with education provision. If you look at the Roman Empire, it fell to pieces. When the Roman Empire fell apart, that created space for alternatives to be developed. It's much harder for us, because the empire's not falling apart quite as enthusiastically. We can't create this kind of space voluntarily without a terrible struggle, because it requires the cooperation of the state and the agreement of the electorate. And the electorate now vote themselves free money all the time, and they're probably not going to want to stop doing that. And this is the great libertarian paradox. We are the people who want to take over the government in order to leave you alone. And we need the state to roll back its own power, and that's a terrible, terrible process. This means that the deregulation of the education market in Australia is very unlikely to happen in the near future without a very open public discussion that might change the public mindset. I was amazed that the UK was able to deregulate its school system. It came after decades of arguing, but it's because the public debate shifted and people found out what was really being talked about and found out how it would benefit them personally to have a deregulated education system. That's how you change the debate. And that is something all of us can be involved in. That, I see that as a potential solution to this problem, getting that idea back on the table or on the table in the first place. So what about the second one, neglect of traditional humanistic studies and loss of common culture? I'd say straight out there's no lack of traditional humanistic studies in Australia. They're proliferating, but they're appalling because they've been hijacked and subverted by, once again, state-funded, state-endorsed, state-approved and state-rewarded postmodernist academic culture. The answer here is cut off the money stop the state funding and let these ideas compete in the market because they can't compete. They're rubbish. The, they, these are like subsidised energy alternatives, these ideas. They can only survive in that very hothouse, heavily subsidised academic environment. Have we lost a common culture? 
in Australia. I had to really think about that one because I don't think we have lost it completely. I believe there is actually quite an identifiable mainstream in Australia and it's quite a reassuring one. We have not gone as far down the path of social collapse as the UK and the US. If you look at indicators like births out of wedlock and divorce rates and, and so forth, our indicators are better than those of the UK and the US. Something that gets left out of this discussion whenever we start talking about social indicators and social breakdown is that family and social breakdown is infinitely more prevalent among low-income communities. Okay, we know that the problem is throughout society, but it's particularly concentrated in the low socioeconomic status group. That's where you get the greatest number of de facto relationships, multi-generational welfare dependency, too many surnames in one family, kind of, you know, you know what I'm talking about, unstable housing, substance abuse, with all the inevitable outcomes of this, you know, the, the poor health, the physical health and the mental health outcomes, no aspirations, no opportunities, hugely increased rates of incarceration. It doesn't matter what colour these people are and it doesn't matter what language they speak and it doesn't matter what their religion is. The common factor in these groups is always poverty, always. And the things that made these people poor are keeping them poor. And this to me is where Catholic libertarianism is a standout. If you really want to restore liberal education as a basis for the good life, a really radical place to start would be by alleviating poverty. And you could assist this process by further deregulating the employment market, lowering the minimum wage, it's counterintuitive, but it actually works, eliminating income tax at the lowest income levels, so raising that tax-free threshold, Reducing taxes on business owners that make it harder for them to employ people, especially young people. You alleviate poverty most effectively, I believe, through workforce participation. That's the way to do it. And that has a knock-on benefit for a lot of people and for their families. I think a liberal education can and should be the basis for living a good life, but you need to match that with good economic opportunities. There's no point giving a person a PhD in liberal arts and then they have to drive a taxi for the rest of their life because we know those people are out there too. Talk to your Uber driver sometime. I think if we had a deregulated education market and a slightly more deregulated employment market, that opens up so many more doors to so many more people. And if you throw into that a commitment to the use of English as a common language, I think you've got a really good recipe for success there. If you can boost workforce participation rates, it is much easier to restore a common culture. Because when people have jobs and incomes, they like to try and own property. And people who are trying to own property or who are, you know, hanging on to it by their, their toenails are much less likely to be involved in social unrest. They're much more likely to develop all of those civic virtues like urban pride and building up their local community. So again, that is a hard solution. That is a really hard solution, which means it's probably never going to happen um, in my lifetime. It would currently be electoral suicide. But again, I think that's somewhere where we can make a contribution by helping to get these issues back on the table for discussion instead of gay marriage and koala survival rates and, and whatever else. If we could be talking about the economy much more vigorously and in these terms and offering genuine alternatives to the idea of just increasing government spending exponentially. And the last big wrong that we have to look at is the disregard of religion as a public good. 
The colloquium flyer says religion is a way of looking at the world and our place in it. Without some understanding of the religious dimension, we are cut off from our past. And when I read that, three things popped up for me. The first was, is the principal role of religion to connect us with our past? I don't think it is. I think it's a happy side effect of having a religion, particularly historical religion like Christianity or Judaism, but it's not the main religion we have it. And I hope Alex is going to talk a bit more about the secular idea of religion and, and our idea of religion. When we talk, Number two, the second point that popped up for me is when we now start talking about religion in the public sphere, the pitch has been irretrievably queered by the incursion of radicalised Islam, which is a religion that no one wants in the public sphere. So it's now become that little bit harder to talk about religion in the public sphere. And the third thing that popped into my head is whose fault is it that religion, particularly Christianity, is now largely excluded from the public sphere? Well, that would be our fault, actually, because we allowed that to happen. We allowed this to become disregarded. And I, I don't need to remind anyone of our really public failures as a church just recently, but, but also for a whole lot of other reasons, we have allowed that to happen personally and collectively. So this is probably the hardest one for me to talk about because I have the bleakest view here of where the future is heading and where liberal education might be tied up with this. We have an increasingly hostile secular state facing us down over questions of freedom of religion at the moment and also freedom of speech. And I don't know if any of you were able to come to Jared Henderson's presentation here where he talked about exactly this, this, this problem with freedom of religion and also freedom of speech in Australia, which is being restricted. There are, in fact, three interconnected rights here which are under threat in Australia and which I think people who believe in liberal education and liberal virtues should probably be fighting really hard to try and defend. That's freedom of religion, freedom of speech and equality of all citizens under just laws. Because we currently have profound dysfunction in many areas of our judiciary and our police forces. And this is a really bad situation because these are the people with the guns and you don't want to have dysfunction with those people. We've got bodies like the Human Rights Commission you know, persecuting people shamelessly. And all Christians and other associated people of goodwill need to be fighting much harder for all three of these rights, not just freedom of religion. You need to be fighting for all three. You need to tap into, we need to tap into those deep liberal education roots that are in us and pull out really strong convictions that the Judeo-Christian tradition is the source of those rights and that they are all worth defending. Um, I know that sometimes we have our argument, argument hijacked by our friendly neighbourhood atheists who we love, you know, and who are, who are coming along in the fight with us, but they're big fans of the Enlightenment and they think these values actually grew out of breaking away from organised religion. I think we probably need to push back a little harder against that argument without alienating, of course, our, our atheist friends who have their point of view. The solution, oh, this is hard because it's actually really, really painfully personal. I don't think it's about restoring liberal education to teach people what a splendid thing Christianity is. I think it's actually showing people what a splendid thing Christianity is by letting it transform our individual lives. Not in an inward-looking, cranky, cultish kind of us-and-them way, but in a genuine, open, joyful, loving, I won't say inclusive, loving way. <laughs> 
And of course, that's the work of a lifetime and it's the only way that works and there's no shortcuts and we can't legislate it into existence. That becomes a very personal challenge for all of us. It's the hardest one to solve. But again, I think rolling back the power of the state and creating a more liberal society would be the best way to advance the cause of religion. This is, again, where Catholic libertarianism seems to me a really obvious solution. Um, that word liberty is so important. Christianity thrives in a truly free society. And if you want to thrive and not just survive, we, we're going to have to fight because these rights are under threat constantly and the threat is becoming greater and greater. It's in and out of the education sector. If we can't fight or, or we won't fight or if we fail in this fight and there's every likelihood that we will fail then the creation of alternative structures means going back to the catacombs. But, hey, we've done that. It's okay. We can do that. But it would just be so much better if we didn't give up now, if we could actually fight a little bit for this. And, and who knows, we might win. We might win and hang on for a bit longer. So, calling the whole thing off. I've proposed some rather radical solutions to the three big wrongs. I actually think all of these solutions are eminently workable um, and realistic, but they would be difficult. They would be so amazingly difficult um, and extremely unpopular in the current climate. So I think our job might be partly to help change that climate when and where we can and try to get these ideas, smaller government, lower taxes, greater social freedom, back on the agenda. Do it in education, but do it in other areas as well. Without radical change, we're going to continue. In fact, it's going to get smaller and smaller. The pressure on us is going to get greater and greater. This stifling climate of state control of everything and the alternative structures we try to create are going to be more like underground movements than anything else. Rod Dreher, who wrote The Benedict Option, and there's another um, American author, Yuval Levin, who wrote a book called The Fractured Republic, which I've been reading recently. They believe the way forward is, yes, develop alternatives, develop these subcultures, but these subcultures need to be cohesive and attractive. And this is where also a lot of us go wrong. We're really good at developing alternative ways of thinking and living and teaching, and we really struggle to make these attractive to other people because they can be a bit on the cranky side. Not that I'm saying independent scholars are cranks, but we, we can. We can get very cranky and very inward-looking. I love Catholic libertarianism because it's not cranky and it's not inward-looking. It is very outward-looking. It's very welcoming. Um, and I think also it could be used to recapture that emotional high ground that we've lost. Conservatism and, and good liberalism has lost the emotional high ground. We've lost the ability to capture people's emotions. That's been totally hijacked by the left. We probably need to try and start taking that back because Catholic libertarianism is about genuine social justice, genuine equality of opportunity, not just equality, but equality of opportunity and genuine um, freedom of choice. Yes, it may be a pipe dream, it may never move into the mainstream as a political movement, but I think it does offer a, ph a philosophy that's both cohesive and attractive. So can we realistically restore liberal education, religion and a common culture in Australia? Maybe, but I don't think it will be taking back the existing structures. I think they're now corrupted beyond repair. But if we're going to try creating alternatives, we must commit to playing a very long game. And I think we have to remember we are probably in the season of the furrow. Um, probably a Dawson-esque very lone furrow as well for some of us, not the season of the harvest. We're breaking up the ground, I think, at the moment. St Ambrose was no fool, 
and he was also around at a time of great social change. And he wrote to a fellow bishop something quite wonderful, which I'm going to read to you by way of conclusion. This is what he said. Therefore, let your words be rivers, clean and limpid, so that in your exhortations you may charm the ears of your people and by the grace of your words win them over to follow your leadership. And I think that's what we should be aiming for, to charm the ears of the people and win them over to a different way of looking at how we can organise <laughs> the political economy, how we can organise society. And I think that's how you can restore liberal education as a basis for living the good life. I think we have to fix up the society before we can fix up the education, not the other way around. And our success or failure will depend on whether we really believe that we have something worth offering. Otherwise, we will simply remain Western civilization's weekend warriors. Thank you. That was Philippa Martyr with Let's Call the Whole Thing Off. This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium on the theme Liberal Education, Restoring the Notion of Education as the Basis for Living the Good Life, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. And for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.